Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, we've gotten a lot of news uh, having to do peripherally with President Trump. Uh, Michael Cohen, former attorney to the president, uh, pleaded guilty to a number of charges, including campaign finance uh, misuse, uh, lack of reporting, as well as tax fraud. We also are hearing about Paul Manafort, who was convicted uh, of a number of different things, including a uh, also tax fraud, but also potentially money laundering. Paul Manafort was former campaign campaign advisor to President Trump. Joining us now to break this all down is Joe Moreno, partner, white collar defense and investigations group uh, member at Cadwallader in Washington, D.C. He also is a former prosecutor with uh, the Department of Justice, uh, working for the United States in the National Security Division. Also a decorated veteran and a former attorney with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Joe, I want to start just giving you a pretty a pretty broad question, which is, you've seen the coverage of both Paul Manafort as well as Michael Cohen. What are people getting wrong or what are we focusing on uh, that we shouldn't be and, and what should we be focusing on? Hey, Melissa. Hey, thanks. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. And uh, just one caveat. I was actually not with the Securities and Exchange Commission, but ah, the rest of that intro okay. you had absolutely right. <laughs> just want to put that out there. But but you're right. I mean, a lot happened yesterday afternoon in terms of Paul Manafort, Michael Cohen, and even Duncan Hunter, a Republican congressman from California, being indicted. So uh, to kind of mix through what to focus on going forward and what is sort of going to, you know, is significant, but it's going to blow past us. Uh, Paul Manafort's trial generated a lot of attention. I mean, I'm, I'm here in Washington, D.C. Alexandria is five miles away, and people have been waiting, waiting with bated breath to figure out what's going to happen. So now we know. But the reality is, aside from Mr. Manafort's probably you know, potentially significant sentence and his second trial in D.C. on money laundering charges next month, he may not have a lot of impact on the White House directly. It does not seem like he's going to crack. He might not have anything that's helpful to the special counsel in terms of Russia collusion. So while it's headline generating and it's fascinating to see the fall of this person, um, in terms of the longer picture and its impact on the administration, it might not be that significant. Now, Michael Cohen, on the other hand, could be very potentially significant. And you honed in on it in your intro, which is that He's facing, you know, he, well, he's pled now to a several different charges, but the ones that really have the potential for some further impact have to do with campaign finance violations, yeah. and specifically the fact that he indicated that he, 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 you know, he, he conducted these offenses at the behest of another person. And, the, you know, the implication is that person was the candidate for presidency, Donald Trump. Oh, so in terms wait, of- wait, wait, wait. You're absolutely glossing over this one. If you read the the actual charging documents, you know, it, with person number one who was candidate for president in the United States, it's pretty clear cut that it's talking about President Trump. Yes. Yes, it is. It, it could be no one else. So, <laughs> so while you know, the, while the president's not not indicated by name, certainly that's you know that's the exposure here. And so the question will be very focused now on those two charges, count seven and eight, that Michael Cohen has now pled guilty to, and what are the implications for other people, specifically the president? 
And so this goes to, you know, what exactly was the offense? And it's not the kind of campaign finance violation we often think of, right, where we have donations from individuals that are meant to be used for legitimate campaign expenses, and instead they're used for vacations or, or personal kind of use or sports cars or completely inappropriate things. That's the case that's being built against Duncan Hunter. In this case, it's not so much use of campaign funds. It's a contribution, allegedly, to the campaign that was used to benefit the campaign. And so and it was done in this circuitous way of going through Michael Cohen, reimbursed in a kind of a strange way through invoices to the Trump, admin, or Trump uh, organization, right. co- compensated as lawyers' fees, when it, you know, instead it appears that this was money paid to advance the campaign by keeping individuals silent about information, negative information about candidate Trump. So the, the scheme that Michael Cohen has pled to is a little unusual, and it could be a little complicated. And there are experts on both sides that would argue whether or not this, in fact, is a violation, because the campaign finance rules and the laws are complicated, and this is not a case that's been brought in the past. So there's a bit of a leap here. But in terms of what the president's legal team is hunkering down now to think about, this has got to be their focus. And it'll be really instructive in the coming days. And we've already seen some tweets this morning about how the president's legal team is going to address this. Are they going to take it head on and say, Michael Cohen is just, he's out of his mind, he's lying, it didn't happen? Or are they going to take a more nuanced approach and say, well, you know, maybe it didn't go down exactly this way, but even if it did, it's a technicality. Well, and that not seems a clear to be violation. To yep. be honest, that seems to be the tack that they're taking, based on the fact that he said that this was not breaking the law. President Trump, I'm talking about in a Twitter post today. So that seems to be the tact, sort of honing in on the fact that this is a non-traditional and uh, non-usual uh, sort of use of this particular provision. Correct. Correct. And so, you know, that's the approach I would take. Right. I would. It's going to be hard to say it didn't happen if, in fact, Michael Cohen has tapes and and his sworn testimony and other evidence he may or may not have. So to kind of take the nuanced approach and say, well, it's not quite a clear violation. And even if it is, it's a technicality. It's a slap on the wrist. Others have done this. You know, point to other cases like John Edwards and, and say, you know, it's not a clear violation and, and hope that that flies both yeah. with the American people and with Congress. Well, Joe, you know, there's one aspect of this whole thing that I find incredibly confusing, and that is that Michael Cohen is a pleaded to a non-cooperation agreement. In other words, he hasn't he's, he hasn't been recognized for his cooperation with federal prosecutors. This is confusing to me because he's out there and his attorneys are out there basically begging to give as much information as they can to whoever will listen. What? How did you interpret that? Well, you're not the only one who's confused. This is this is a, a, a kind of a nuance in the Southern District of New York. There's effectively two ways he could have pled. One was what he did, which was a straight plea. Basically, he says, I'm owning up to it. I'm not going to fight the charges. I take responsibility for these counts, and I plead guilty, and I throw myself at the mercy of the court. The other one would have been through a cooperation agreement where he was obligated to give to give some kind of assistance to the FBI and the prosecutors in New York. Now, there could be a couple of reasons why he didn't go that route. One could be that he doesn't have anything that's particularly helpful to them. Either he's not credible or what he said to them was not especially helpful. Yeah. Uh, the other possibility is they have what they need. 
They, yeah. they, you know, the SDNY was looking at Michael Cohen specifically. They built their case around him. They had what the evidence that they needed, and they're not really concerned about ancillary people. Mm. And so the person who could be concerned about ancillary people, of course, yeah. is special counsel Mueller. Right. So that's why there's certainly a possibility, and this has been sort of intimated by Michael Cohen's lawyer already, that he is eager to help special right. counsel Mueller any way he can. So of course. Perhaps he, that he, would, he has to. Right. Yeah, perhaps that will be the way for him to get a deal. Unfortunately, we have to leave it there. Joe Moreno, thank you so much for taking the time. Joe Moreno is partner uh, with Cadwallader in the White Collar Defense and Investigations Group, former uh, federal prosecutor, also a uh, veteran of the United States Army. Well, today, aside from the Washington, D.C. drama, you are seeing a little bit of drama uh, in oil markets, among others, where you are seeing uh, a significant gain after uh, a U.S. government report showed the biggest decline in crude inventories since late July. Hugh Johnson joining us now, chairman and chief investment officer of Hugh Johnson Advisors. I want to start with oil because my sense is uh, that your life is not being very uh, significantly impacted by what's going on with Washington, D.C. Am I correct? Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Uh, we're not paying attention to what Washington, D.C., what's going on there, and it doesn't appear as though it's going to impact the things that really drive the markets, which, of course, are interest rates and earnings. And so right now we're, uh, not, we're, we're not completely ignoring it, but we're not changing our investment strategy because of what's going on in Washington. All right. So given that, I do want to just home in a little bit on oil just because uh, commodity markets mm-hmm. have had kind of a, an uncertain outlook for the past couple of weeks, in particular with the plunge in metals. Uh, oil also declining, um, but now you're seeing a little bit of a gain. I'm curious about how much you think about the price of oil and how that factors into what you, uh, what you buy. We think about oil all the time, and it's very volatile, and it would be grandiose of me, Lisa, to say that I could forecast what's going to happen to the price of oil. But uh, quite frankly, uh, we do work hard on forecasting it, and a, and a price for West Texas Intermediate around $65 per barrel uh, more accurately reflects global supply and demand conditions. But you'll get a lot of volatility around that. So you get a decline from $60 down to $50. That's very unusual, but not in a volatile environment. Most of that decline, in fact, I would say just about all of that decline is largely a function of the fact that the dollar has been so strong, which really means to every other country around the world, the price of oil has gone up and gone up significantly. And as a result of that, and it's not in today's report, but as a result of that, over time, what we've seen is a significant increase in in inventories. And basically what that has done is it's caused a very sharp decline below what that $65 or equilibrium level, which, you know, I think we're going to return to that level even when we get the uh, sanctions on oil in Iran in, in November. Yeah. Uh, but it's uh, it looks like we're headed in that direction. So I think oil is very undervalued right now. Well, okay, but I'm looking right now at a $67.30 barrel of oil and WTI barrel of oil. So I, I'm just wondering, I mean, you're saying it's going to go down to 65 barrel, uh, 65 yeah, uh, Well, I think it's, I think it's going to basically, if we're at 60, 67 today, 
uh, then I think it'll probably stabilize around current uh, current levels. Yeah. Uh, but uh, b- b- believe me, I think that more accurately reflects uh, supply and demand conditions as they exist today. All right. So given that, how do you use that thesis in your investments? I mean, do you buy uh, equities in the big oil companies? Do you look for shale opportunities and MLPs? What's what's sort of your strategy there? Okay, the strategy in energy is first of all, I think on balance, either market weight, maybe even a little bit overweighted in a sector in the energy sector in a portfolio. Remember, you want to be diversified. You want to have exposure to all eleven sectors of the market, and then within the energy sector, you want to have things that work well when the price of oil goes up, and things that work well when the price of oil goes down. That means you want to own production companies. We own production companies. Conoco's an example, but you also want to own companies like Valero, and again, we own that one, and Valero is, of course, a refiner, and that really benefits from a decline in the price of oil, so it's not just owning energy. You want to have a market weight or a slight overweight, but also within the oil sector, make sure you have a sensibly put-together portfolio, and that means production companies and also refiners. How much does the price of oil, in your view, hinge on uh, an escalation of trade tensions or a lack thereof? You know, uh, that largely depends on the dollar and what happens to the dollar as a result of trade tensions. And uh, what we've seen more recently, and it's important because what the dollar has been doing is very important. And we've seen the dollar go up and we've seen foreign currencies go down. Now, that's got good news for it because... It attracts a lot of capital to our markets, which in my judgment is very important because domestic money conditions are, are, are really not that good. We're not getting enough growth in the money supply to drive the economy and earnings. And fortunately, the dollar has been strong and attracted foreign capital to our markets, and that's offset the domestic liquidity shortfall. So sort of kind of indirectly, I would say, that the escalation of trade tensions it has, it, to some extent, benefited us. And thankfully, we've got a stronger dollar, and thankfully, we've got uh, the international flow of capital to uh, to our markets and offset that domestic liquidity shortfall. It's a little technical, Lisa. I apologize for that. But at the same time, it's an extremely important uh, concept. So yeah. I'm not worried too much about the trade trade problem right now. Hugh, uh, one, one last thing, uh, just quickly here. President Trump has come out and said that he wishes that the dollar were weaker, also accused China and the European Union of manipulating their currencies. I'm wondering how much as a portfolio manager do you care? You know, um, right now, and I'd say it's really right now, and that's where I would emphasize, is is right now because of the domestic liquidity shortfall, a strong dollar is extremely important. It's important for the reasons that I just mentioned, attracting foreign capital to our markets when we need it the most. So a weak dollar, yeah, I know that's supposed to help a lot of U.S. companies compete in international markets. And and there are times when you have to have that. But not right now. Right now, with liquidity conditions as weak as they are, a strong dollar is extremely important, and we all ought to be very thankful we've got it. Hugh Johnson, thank you so much for being here. It's really interesting to speak with you. Hugh Johnson is chairman and chief investment officer at Hugh Johnson Advisors, which oversees more than a billion dollars from Albany, New York, uh, talking about that dollar, which actually uh, is weakening a little bit today. Mexican peso climbing as there are there is speculation that a NAFTA agreement uh, will come up shortly.
If you haven't gotten your Tesla fixed today, have no fear. We're going to be talking about that company right now because it is the drama that just keeps on giving. But we're going to take a little bit different of a tack here. We're going to take a look at the debt aspect of this story. The company has basically financed itself uh, with uh, debt and, I guess, to some degree, equity, but more debt uh, as it burns through cash. And there's a question, if this company does go private, as Elon Musk seems to want to see it uh, do so, what happens to all that debt? And joining us now is Joel Levington, senior credit analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence and just general credit guru. If you have a question about credit, you call Joel Levington. Joel, so what's your take on this? I mean, what could potentially happen to this debt? Uh, not a lot. I think it's uh, going to be sticking out there, uh, particularly the 2025 bonds, the senior unsecured bonds that we often talk about that are in the Bloomberg indices. I think it becomes a game of will they be structurally subordinated and to what degree uh, will be the issue, and that will determine where the bonds are going. Okay, so today we had a story on the Bloomberg. Tesla bonds may see doomsday in private deal. Dun, dun, dun. And it was sort of it was citing this um, blog post by 24 Asset Management Chief Executive Mark Holman saying that secured debt funding to take Tesla private may become practically impossible. Do you agree? Well, taking it private and putting a, a lot of debt on it are two different things. Uh, can it be taken private? Yes. I think the math in my models tell me that you need roughly about $60 billion of equity to have that done, meaning that you can, at a, at a maximum, probably put about $10 billion of additional debt on the company today uh, in a take-private scenario and still make it work um, you know, from a, a rational uh, uh, capital structure standpoint. Okay. I guess that uh, one question that I have as we talk about Tesla and going private, Morgan Stanley perhaps coming in on this, um, I have to wonder, when does Tesla run out of cash? When are we sort of done with this? Uh, sort of when will they do, what will they do kind of discussion to uh, how long can they survive discussion? Right. Well, that might be never ending until they go private. <laughs> um, you know, the, the company had said that it would be as early as the third quarter where they would be free cash flow neutral. Uh, the mathematics that I do tell me that it would be really, really difficult for that to happen uh, in the third quarter or in the fourth quarter. And, you know, with all of the challenges that are going on now with Elon Musk and issues that I'm sure are taking up uh, much more of his time than he ever imagined, uh, the odds are they're probably taking the ball, uh, their eye off the ball a little bit. And uh, I think they'll struggle into uh, 2019, which may eventually be a mechanism which will preclude them from going into a, a private scenario. All right. So, you know, I want to use Tesla as an example of the broader high-yield debt market, because right now we talk about Tesla, it's burning through cash, it has an erratic CEO, there are questions about executive leadership, there are questions about the board oversight, especially with some of the tweets that are now being investigated by the SEC for possible market manipulation. Tesla bonds that are due in 2025, certainly trading at a discount at a little bit more than 87 cents uh, on the dollar, but that isn't that much. I mean, the yield to maturity there is 7.6%, not as much as you would think, given the fact that over the past two decades, that's been very average, if not below the average of high yield bonds. I mean, just in general, when you look around the uh, speculative grade universe, do you feel like things are, are, are really overvalued at this point? Or, or you think that it sort of is in line with what we've seen elsewhere? Well, I think for the broader universe that I cover, which are industrials and autos, I don't particularly think that it's overvalued. I think... Um, 
in many cases, it becomes hard to find an upside case for some of these bonds. That doesn't mean that they're going down. Uh, I just think, uh, particularly on the auto side, it's hard to make cases that uh, autos are going to get better in any way. So I, I, I think there are definitely spots where it becomes more challenging to find a balanced upside-downside case. Um, but in aggregate, I think you're you're fine because there's very low default risk if you're talking about the twenty thousand foot level. Yeah. So from the twenty thousand foot level, it doesn't seem like you're going to necessarily see some kind of wave of bankruptcies. Uh, but that said, if you've got very little upside, does that mean that people are just basically uh, buying for for the carry, and that's basically the trade at this point? I think so. I think so. In in many cases, is the carry enough to justify, especially as treasuries gets treasury yields get higher? Uh, well, you know, treasuries and uh, high yield don't necessarily correlate all that well together. Uh, if you think about, you know, why REITs would be rising to slow growth, uh, that implies that growth is pretty good. And smaller companies, when you have uh, smaller numbers like EBITDA and sales, they go up exponentially relative to large caps. Uh, so in some ways, uh, a rising rate environment is indicative of a strong uh, economic backdrop for the for high yield bonds to perform well, and one thing that I'm wondering is, you know, are do you think that there could be a substantial hit to some of these companies if borrowing costs rise? You know, if you do see treasury yields continue to rise, because that people haven't been talking about that that much since treasury yields haven't risen all that much uh, in the past few months. But I'm just wondering, you know, is that still on the radar here? Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a 2019 event, but I think if you look out to 20, let's say 2021 as a spot where debt maturities will start to elevate again, and you'll be resetting at higher rates. I, I definitely do think that there is risk, but I think there's been enough uh, refinancing activity that's taken place over the last couple of years that the can has been kicked down the road a little bit longer. Joel Levington, thank you so much for being with me. I love speaking with you. Joel Levington, Senior Credit Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us here in our 1130 studios. Just want to bring you up to speed on the markets. The SP500 and NASDAQ both have turned green since a somewhat soggy open. Dow Jones still down, but just barely less than one-tenth of one percent. Uh, if we switch up the boards and we get a sense of what's going on in the bond market, well, you're getting a little bit of actually a uh, decline in yield, so a rally there as well as people People try to understand what the political implications are from uh, two close uh, close contacts with President Trump face legal uh consequences to a number of actions that may or may not have had anything to do with him. Uh, we're going to be speaking about that more coming up. We're also going to be speaking uh, just in general about how much investment managers care because so far markets kind of aren't reacting that much. Let's talk safe havens at a time when the S&P 500 is reaching a new record high and is climbing uh, to a new record with respect to a bull market length. Joining us now, John Bartlett, Vice President, Co-Portfolio Manager of the Reeves Utilities ETF for Reeves Asset Management, overseeing more than $3 billion uh, based in New Jersey. He joins me here in New York. John, thank you so much for being here. I'm wondering, is it a hard sell right now to convince investors to try to even look for a haven at a time when the best bet has been just 
U.S. equities? Well, it really depends on the investor. Um, and I would say that utilities offer a lot of different things to a lot of different types of, of, of folks out there. You know, Generally speaking, utilities have been having a great summer. Uh, the weather is warm. We've been making uh, making more power and, and, and warm selling. Warm is generous. Warm it's is... been <laughs> disgusting. Go on. But anyway, uh, you know, utilities earnings have been coming through. Um, and we expect earnings to be growing in the five to six percent range for these for these companies, and the dividend in the in the three to five percent. Uh, sorry, in the in the the dividend yield in the three and a half percent range. Um, but to your question, you know, there are when we started um, the the Reeves Utility ETF. Uh, about three years ago, there were lots of different concerns then, and there are maybe some different concerns now. And you know, the question we always get is really about interest rates. Now, clearly, utilities are wonderful because they're safe haven for um, you know geopolitical risk and things like that. Yeah, you need maybe, to pay your bills that's, every month. That's absolutely right, and these companies can be counted on to grow their earnings year in and year out. Um, but by and large, you know, if you kind of go back those last three years. Everybody was convinced that that interest rates were going to go up, and they were all absolutely right. Um, you know, if you look back, the Fed has raised rates by 175 basis points. The 10-year has gone from 215 to 285, but our little old ETF has chugged along at 14.2 percent a year. And really, yeah, and that's actually even versus the index has been up about 12.2. So the question is, how does that happen? And the 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 answer really lies in the steady growth of these companies and the very conservative revenue trajectory that they all have. All right. So steady growth. Uh, is this what kind of utilities are these? I mean, is there more steady growth in particular types uh, that rely on different types of energy in different locations around the country? How do you identify the uh, the best utilities? Well, it's you know, it's a it's a great question because it's so important to remember that every utility is different. We've got 51 different regulatory jurisdictions in the country, one of which being the federal government, the rest being the states. And so start, you have to start with regulation, um, but you also have to look at the, you know, utilities need to earn the right to grow. And the ability to grow is, is really a very important component in this. And I would say that utilities are really the only, um, the only segment of industrial America where investors tend to underpay for growth. And the answer, the reason for that is they tend to overpay for yield. And they think that they're, you know, getting a, a compelling total return story by buying, you know, the, the companies with the highest yield. But what we found is the companies that have been able to deliver consistent earnings growth continue to be able to do so. Although, in fairness, I mean, if, if a utility is growing profits too quickly, then because of the 51 uh, different regulatory regime, you're going to have an outcry and the regulators are going to swoop in and say, hey, whoa, 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 lower those bills. People shouldn't be paying as much if you're being that profitable. That's right. And you know, we look for we look for companies that can provide their regulator their regulators political victories. And you know, you have to like I said, you have to earn the right to grow. Earning the right to grow doesn't mean um, you know, growing having uh, really ridiculous profits. What it means is being able to grow your investment base. You know, give give customers something a little bit better for the spending. All right. So let's talk specific regions. I mean, right now we're dealing with California's wildfires uh, that I don't know if that's good or bad for utilities because it could take them out and cause a lot of problems. They then have to rebuild. Uh, but you are dealing with a heat wave that is leaving people absolutely begging for air conditioning, certainly on the uh, on the East Coast. So where are you seeing the uh, opportunities? Well, I think it's worth talking about California for a second because California really is its own unique animal. 
animal. Um, and it's important to remember that the headlines that you see about utilities in California really don't affect uh, utilities in the other states. The, the, the California utilities right now are really in a tangle um, regarding the liability from all of these wildfires. In California- PNG, right? P, uh, Pacific Gas and Electric has caused the most damage. They have a potential liability that could be as much as $15 billion. Um, and in California, no matter what happens, um, as a consequence of you know an act of God, if it's if the fire is caused by utility equipment, if somebody runs their car off the road and into a utility pole, knocks the utility pole over and it starts a fire, the utility is on the hook for the uh, for 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 the liability. Now they are supposed to be able to 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 collect that in rates, but the California Commission um, has to this point said that they don't have the the legal authority to pass those costs along. So the you, legal authority who does? That's correct. Um, well. It's that's what's getting getting okay. worked right now right. at right now. So again, you have to be very cognizant of what's going on with regulation. You, we, we try to avoid uh, really some of the hot points. That's a bad pun in this case, but uh, um, <laughs> anyway. Uh, so again, it's it's something that we 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 pay a lot of attention to. All right. So um, I'm just wondering, uh, just here, we've got a little bit less than a minute. What are the biggest risks to your thesis right now? Well, you know, everybody has to take their own counsel um, on on where interest rates are going. That's what I sort of see as, 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 as the biggest, quote unquote, risk to these companies. That's really more of a statement of how low risk they are as opposed to anything else, frankly. Um, I personally believe that we've been in a fairly benign interest rate environment, and we're going to, to kind of stay that way for the foreseeable future. Um, the good news is that utilities remain better than bonds, right? So if you have a long duration bond and interest rates really move against you, there's really no way to catch up. Um, you know, we're in an environment where people are buying corporate bonds. You, you can't buy corporate bonds below par anymore and hope for some sort of price reset, right? right? In utilities, you have at least the, the, the tailwind of 5% earnings growth. John Bartlett, really interesting. Thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, John Bartlett, Vice Pre President and Co-Portfolio Manager of the Reeves Utilities ETF, trades under the ticker UTES. It's up 5.4% so far year to date. Uh, Reeves Asset Management oversees more than $3 billion based in New Jersey. Uh, interesting to think about that 51 state and federal government regulatory web overseeing just how much you pay every month to have that blessed air conditioning. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.